Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Good evening. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Yes, and we are excited to have you here with us tonight. We will give you a little heads up. This is a pre-recorded show. I am actually scheduled to be traveling in Bend, Oregon this night and so yes speaking at a youth conference there in central oregon yes and you know prayers appreciated for that yes but looking forward to being with hundreds and hundreds of young people they're doing some good work up there um in the central oregon area should have several hundred kids there uh 700 was the last um estimate yeah and our friend uh, Tim Barnett is speaking with you. Yes. From Stand to Reason. Yes, he is. Cousin Tim. All right. Um, tag team thing. Yes. <laughs> tag team. Back again. Never mind. Let me stop. Sorry. Is that another one of those songs that I it's don't just, know? Yeah, it is. It is. It is. But <laughs> if you know, you know. Yes. <laughs> Cultural differences. There it is. All right. So we want to invite you to um, support the show. That's what this part is. This is the audience participation part of the show where you can um, hit the thumbs up, make sure you're subscribed, make sure you're still subscribed because sometimes YouTube likes to help you out and unsubscribe you. Yes, it does. <laughs> and tonight's show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. Uh, the Theology Mom podcast. And Family 210 Clothing. That's right. And so we want to encourage you to go over to your family's website, family210.com. Check out a shirt. And $10 roughly of each shirt goes to either help our family or help Center for Biblical Unity if you buy one of our CFBU designs. Yeah, depending on the design you buy. That's right. So tonight, yes, there is an off-code podcast dropping. So it'll be when this is airing on Saturday, mm -hmm. it'll be dropping during the night while people are sleeping. Yes. They'll wake up to a nice little present in the morning. Of a new episode of Off Code yes. uh, with you and our friend Kevin Briggins. Why don't yes. you just give them a little sneak peek so they can go find it, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Yes, find it on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Off Code is a new podcast endeavor that um, Kevin Briggins and I are embarking on. And it's really to have conversations um, in public and in the open about things that may be happening within the black community. Is it just for black people? No, but it is to be able to talk about some of the myths, some of the issues that are present there, because one of the, the key arguments that I hear about issues happening within the black community is, well, whiteness. Well, whiteness can't be the answer for everything. So what are some ways that we can highlight some of the issues, concerns that may be present within the black community and not saying black community as a monolith, but we are seeing some of the same issues pop up in many different communities. So how do we talk about that? How do we um, kind of expose some of those things? And we call it off code because the code, the cultural code is that you keep your business in the house. You don't put your business in the street. We don't talk about um, issues that impact us, you know, in mixed company, meaning in front of white people or things like that in front of people who aren't um, part of the community. 
And so we're just going all the way off code, off of the, the cultural code and having very real conversations about things like marriage, um, the black church, the black vote, the black community overall. And so we are, yeah, we're, this is our third podcast. It, it sets to drop at midnight tonight or yeah. midnight Saturday night. Yeah. Um, and we're just, and we're, this we're one's going to be a conversation. This one's going to be on the black church. Yes. We have S- a special guest, surprise, special guest. We yeah. won't, we won't spoil it, but it's going to be a great episode. Yeah. We've uh, taped it. This week, earlier this week and it's a great episode it's a great conversation yes i have wanted that podcast to drop from the time we recorded it i am ready um <laughs> because it's it's i think it'll be helpful even i mean like i said this this podcast isn't solely for black people we are right. hoping to um get people to, of all ethnicities to really consider the way we are communicating about people people groups um about who can be responsible for what and you know is whiteness to blame for everything yeah it's a great it's a great podcast i'm learning a ton okay so tonight on this show we're going to be tackling something that you and i have been having a lot of hallway conversations over the last several weeks trying to figure out how do we begin to to tackle this this topic and there's been a lot of conversation recently but there's always some new cycle where these issues are coming up of abuse and domestic violence and how they are handled within the local church context so the most recent story in the news was obviously the whole thing at john MacArthur's church we are not here to arbitrate that situation Mm -hmm. or what happened (laughs) but we do want to explore kind of some broad principles of how to deal with this in the church context. Think about some of the concerns that you have, our guest has. So um, I'm going to kind of be interviewing both of you. You're going to step out of the role of co-host a little bit, Uh and I'm going to be interviewing both of you. Uh So here to help us talk about our issues today is a woman I've been trying to convince to get on the show for two and a half years. Yes. I finally did it. Yeah, look at you. Good I know. For you. The one and only Mrs. Ariel Bovat. Welcome to the Yay! show. Yay! Hello, hello, hello. Hello. M- many of our followers will uh, follow you as well on yes. social media. They really appreciate your posts. So you might have heard Ariel's name. And um, we are frequently reposting your content on our Instagram account. So it's great. I think people are really going to enjoy our conversation today. So it's so great having you here. Um, Maybe just start off, Ariel, and telling us a little bit about your background. I can't find the right camera. Um, And your experience and why you're concerned about the conversation about domestic violence and and a little bit of your life experience that that goes into that concern. Yeah, so thanks for asking that question and it's nice to be here. I know that you have asked me for two and a half years to come on and I've hesitated for two and a half years, but I am here now. Um, And that's what counts. Yeah, yeah. And this was the perfect topic for me to like kind of venture out into this because it means a lot to me. It's Um, I work with and counsel a lot of victims of um, domestic violence and just family violence overall. 
So this is this is a topic that I will get out of my comfort zone and um, and to speak on because I think it's important. Um, as far as like my history, I grew up in a physically abusive home um, since my parents divorced when I was probably younger than five. And so there was a lot of physical abuse in the home. My mother was a single parent mother. Um, and so by the time that I left my home, I, um, I kept running away from home, probably be between the ages of like maybe 12 and 13 till about 16 when I finally left my home for good. And then um, I ended up raped at 17 and then I ended up pregnant at 18 and again at 19. So I had to move back home um, um, to the physical abuse, but she stopped abusing because I was already a mother. So um, there's this interesting complex that happens this complex conflict that happens between the abuse of a parent and the love of a parent that gets really, um, the lines get blurred a lot with that scenario, which kind of is easily transferable to a spouse, you know, the love of a spouse and the abuse from the spouse, um, that conflict, um, complex conflict that happens again. So I met my first husband when I was in, when I was in basic training. Um, we were married for three and a half years and he was physically emotionally and psychologically abusive. Um, I ended up leaving the army and the marriage because I knew at the time that the army was not protecting me. So um, I left both and moved back to the States. We were in Germany at the time and, um, and God would save me six months after I left the marriage and the army. And, um, and so you became a Christian after after leaving that marriage. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And, but before I met my first, my second husband, Okay. So, um, it was in that kind of middle space between the divorce being finalized and, and, um, me meeting my, um, my, my current husband now. Um, so it was, it was interesting. It was traumatic. It was hard. Um, and I'm thankful that the Lord saved me when he did, because I probably would have stayed in the marriage had I gotten a lot of the messages that a lot of wives get today um, concerning staying with an abusive house or an abusive spouse for the sake of the marriage. Um, and I think that's probably why I knew I needed to come on and talk about this issue because a lot of wives are getting the same kind of um, answers regarding their abuse in their marriage. So now one of the things I really appreciate about you, Ariel, is just what a rigorous background you have in theology, you've really made an effort to do a true interdisciplinary um, framework. And that's something that I know you're still working on. You're also a, a mom, you're a homeschool mom, you're very devoted to your kids, mm -hmm. you're not out there, you know, pushing a bunch of content and, and traveling all over, giving talks. You're like, I'm a mom. This is what I do. I'm invested in my kids. And so, you know, I respect that. And also I just so respect your diligence to the word and knowing the word and also really diving into both realms of knowledge of therapy, counseling, trauma, and all of that. But how does that fit with my actual theological framework? You are not the counselor who just sprinkles Jesus on top of something. Mm -hmm. You're like, I got to figure this out on the deep structural level. And that is something I, I greatly appreciate yeah. about I, your work. I echo, yeah, I, echo that yeah. as well. I think it was important to me because, um, because I knew I needed answers for myself. Like there was no way I could give anybody answers if I wasn't first applying 
theological answers to myself. So I that I knew both needed to be in place for me to be able to be an effective counselor. So that has been my, but at the same time, not at the expense of my own family. You know, I'm just not going to do it. So, so it's been a challenge. It's not been easy to, to kind of integrate those two um, counseling and theology into kind of an entity. So yeah, that's what I do. But that's a, that's a rare, it's a rare person mm-hmm. who, who does that to the true deep structural level integration. I appreciate um, Ariel's effort. Let me just ask you really quick, what is your experience with domestic violence? I know you've, you've worked some in that area when you were in social service. Yeah. So, um, I also grew up and I don't know many people who know like my backstory, but I also grew up in a, um, a physically violent home for a number of years. Um, and not consistently, like consistently violent, but there were definitely ebbs and flows of that. And, um, I also worked with domestic violence victims as far as like I ran a DV shelter, but and then over oversaw like the larger program for domestic violence victims and have had tons of interactions through that with with DV victims and, you know, looking at, you know, what is your case plan? How, you know, are your kids, um, what is the case plan for your kids? Are they in school? Or, you know, how do we keep you safe? What does it look like to have a safe plan um, or an emergency plan in case you run into your abuser on the street and things like that? So it was my, um, my connection with DV victims was not necessarily in the therapy room, but looking at creating safe plans and case plans for them to be able to move forward, whether that was um, coming into shelter or figuring out the best shelter for them, getting them into transitional housing or, you know, all of the, just the management of that. I think that um, some of that did include some one-on-one stuff, but more um, not, not to the degree of like therapy, just more of case management. We need to have our one-on-one session and check-ins and things like that. Okay. So I'm going to ask Allison, our gal puts the show notes together to also include the video where you do talk a lot about your backstory um, with our friend Katrina Elias on her yeah. podcast. That can be in the show notes if people want to know more about that. I'll just know all my business. <laughs> let me ask you, Ariel, um, what is, tell us a little bit about the work that, that you do with um, victims of domestic violence and, and how you, how you help to service them. Yeah. So I've been working in, I've been working with um, domestic violence of, of like the children um, for even before I was a Christian. Um, um, when I was in my 20s, I started working at, in group homes where children were taken out of the home because of, you know, physical abuse at home. So I have, so I have a lot of history with this. Um, oftentimes, many people that go into counseling, they have either um, personal experiences with physical abuse or, you know, in the home. Or if they're Christians, they either want to do it as a ministry, and this, that was my history as well. Um, but prior to um, prior to ministering, um, like in a, in a ministry type context, I kept interacting with women. This is after the Lord saved me. I kept interacting with women who had some serious relationship problems, where there was various forms of abuse, either physical abuse um, or sexual abuse. And the only thing I could offer them were, were Bible studies. I didn't have any wait, I wasn't equipped to, to deal with those serious problems. There was this one incident where I ended up 
um, we were living in a small town in Texas and um, um, there was a little girl crying in the bathroom and I ended up in the bathroom with her and I asked what was wrong and I knew something was wrong but I couldn't really put my finger on it but um, but I knew at my gut level that I was dealing with something more than just a little girl crying in the bathroom. Um, a few years later, she ended up on my doorstep with her mom. And apparently some guy in the town had been sexually abusing her and she was coming to me for help. And I didn't know, I didn't have anything to offer her other than Bible studies. Um, and at the time that I was doing those Bible studies, they were all written by women. They were real superficial in content. And I knew they weren't, they weren't helpful or they weren't going to offer any real help. Um, so I decided to go back to school and um, I got a pursuit a master's degree in counseling and a master's degree in theological studies just to keep me grounded. Cause I know that when you kind of get into the, the psychology counseling world, academia stuff that you can get lost in the sauce and kind of get really confused as far as like where your grounding and bearings come from. And I didn't want to lose like who it was that saved me and who it was that put me on the right path. So I wanted to keep that part of, of my counseling, you know, foundation. So after I finished those two degrees, I got extra training in DV to facilitate um, court ordered um, classes to perpetrators, which at the time I thought I could handle. I had um, two classes, um, no, three classes, two for males and one for females. Um, they were, they were really challenging, especially the males that, that watch, I'll get into it later. I started having panic attacks again, which I had not gotten since I started seminary. When I left the military, um, I started having panic attacks from 2003 up until about 2013. Um, and then I started, I was getting really confused with all the newfound knowledge that I had about the, the sovereignty of God and God's providence and and depravity of man, all that reform theology, um, plus my counseling education, I thought it would protect me, but it didn't. So when I started interacting with those domestic violence perpetrators, um, I, it, the panic attacks started to interfere with my ability to do my job. So I um, went to the VA and I was officially diagnosed with um, PTSD, um, which led me to pursue the doctorate of traumatology with Liberty University, because I wanted to understand why my body was doing what it was doing, but from a neuroclinical aspect, um, because um, without assuming that I lacked faith or, or, or blaming my lack of faith for why my symptoms were, were, were coming back. So that's what my main focus is now. I currently do biblical clinical counseling as a type of ministry to professing Christians who have histories of trauma and abuse. And I focus on helping them understand their symptoms while keeping um, their, their faith intact. So they're not, they're not looking to question if their faith is valid um, because I don't think that's helpful. It, it even, it exasperates the, the, the trauma symptoms um, because interpersonal history of trauma is very real. And oftentimes when the Lord saves someone in the middle of, of that trauma or in the middle of those experiences, um, people don't really know what to do with all of the consequences that they've had leading up to the time that they were saved. So I work with a lot of Christians who um, have a lot of this interpersonal trauma as they kind of like understand it under the umbrella of their faith. That makes sense. That's so helpful because, and I love how you even described all of that. And I would love to 
talk you into maybe in another two and a half years coming back and talking, do a whole show about trauma, because I think that's just a word that's been so hijacked in the race conversation. And we get questions about it all the time. But um, I'm just going to put a little bookmark there. I'm not going to go off on that trail as much as I want to. But um, now one of the things that I did in preparing for this interview is I listened to a lot of response podcasts to the MacArthur situation. Mm. And a lot of them, I tried to especially zero in on ones that were done by people that had pastoral experience mm-hmm. or were elders in their church. And one of the threads that I started to notice across these podcasts were, um, they weren't quite ready to go all the way with defending MacArthur, but they, they kind of took a posture of, there's no way to know who's telling the truth in an abuse situation. You, if you were a pastor, you would not be able to arbitrate that. And many of them said, I've been in that room. I've been in the room where the wife comes in and gives me a sad story. And then I talk to the husband, he gives me a different story. And these two stories are so far apart from each other. They don't even resemble almost the same story. And they'll tell you that and the, the, the thread that, that I saw among all a lot of these podcasts was I've been in that room. There's no way to arbitrate who's telling the truth. All you, all pastoral leaders can do is just kind of make their best guess. And I'm wondering, because I know Ariel's written about this on social media that, you know, you've you've talked to people on both sides of that equation. Is that your experience as a counselor that you can't tell who's telling the truth? Um, And how do you begin to arbitrate that? How do you like what do you look for to try to figure out what's the real story here? What's really happening in this situation? Yeah, it it, you know, it's very challenging. You know, I'm um, I want to. I want to say that it is hard to tell the truth because um, when you have two people, just like you said, Krista, you know, coming in and giving like two sides of the story, you know, I I know the word bias is, is really um, like it's, it triggers a lot of people, but bias is very real. I know my bias is to believe women because I have been a victim of spousal abuse personally. I also know because of my own childhood experiences that women and mothers can be violent as well. And, you know, if men are honest, if these pastors are honest, um, they have to admit that they will probably tend to be biased towards the men, um, especially since men um, evaluate marital circumstances very different from women. So they're, they're going to have a tendency to see um, more black and white and align with the, men, the husbands that are coming for counseling with their wives. Um, um, so they're going to be biased towards them. They don't even realize that they're doing it, but they're doing it. Um, um, that black and white objectiveness that males perspectives tend to have is really helpful when you're, when you're dealing with other kinds of marital situations, but when you're dealing with like an abusive situation and trying to like parse out the truth from untruth, um, I think men need to be aware that they probably need to be more subjective in the way that they're kind of like receiving information um, specifically if pastors even have their own mother wombs, like if they're like, if their own mothers were physically abusive, they're going to tend to carry that bias into the counseling room as well. And they won't be able to really see the woman, um, or the wife 
in a way that that she probably needs to be heard and seen. So for anyone who counsels, there has to be aware of these kind of gender biases when you're counseling husbands and wives. I know presently, whenever, because of my own biases, I, I invite my husband into marriage counseling with me. So he has some chaplain training with the law enforcement agency that he works for. So he helps kind of balance out my bias. And um, I think it's beneficial to have a husband and wife um, counsel a husband and wife because there's that balance of biases that kind of creep in that you don't even realize is there. Um, I remember, you know, my ex-husband, even before I was in the military, um, we had gone, we were in the Kuwaiti desert and we were having marital issues because he, he was, he was who he was. And he dragged me to an army chaplain because he wanted the army chaplain to tell me that I was wrong for not submitting to his dominating and abusive personality. And I was not even a Christian at the time. So, um, so like I knew what he was doing was wrong, but I, and I was not buying it. So, but I know a lot of wives who show up in the counseling um, office in front of a pastor, um, the husbands are probably doing the same thing. Um, Husbands oftentimes want an authority figure like a counselor or a pastor to affirm um, some kind of weaponization of scripture that often happens in abusive situations. And um, if those who engage in counseling are not aware that their husband, that the husband is doing this, that they will often um, embolden or empower the husband weaponizing scripture to get his wife to concede to the abuse. And these are not helpful patterns and, pa- and pastors who don't um, are not aware of, of the biases they bring into the counseling room oftentimes cause more harm than good when trying to help parse out truth from untruths in a marriage counseling situation. Yes, I think, um, you know, yes, I, I agree that like everybody has blind spots and places that they don't see and things like that. And so I completely agree, like having um, someone else present to be able to help listen in that conversation and add other factors and be like a checks and balance, um, especially if it's, you know, someone of the opposite sex is largely important or it's, it's huge. Um, and I think from, from my perspective, just in listening, um, you know, I know a, a number of pastors who have right off the bat been like, you know, in this situation, um, you know, I want to make sure that I hear, you know, the woman all the way out because I don't want to enter into a, a place where my blind spot or my bias leads me into, you know, automatically siding with someone. So I do I do want to make sure that, you know, no one is saying all men, you know, all male pastors participate this way. We all have blind spots and and things that we um can lean toward. But I love the 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 aspect of bringing someone else in and having more well-rounded conversations and having, um, you know, each sex represented since we're going into a marriage conversation, let's have, you know, a couple counsel the couple, um, and looking at DV situations in like in the, the area like of outside of the church, we used other, um, other sources as ways to arbitrate. So if I had a restraining order in front of me regarding this victim, I knew that this is also a source of um, of evidence. And yeah. so it, in looking at arbitrating a situation, I can say, well, this person, even if the, 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 the waters are muddy and, um, you know, people are saying different things or 
things are kind of just unclear. This can also be a source. And so if a, a victim, no matter what sex comes to you as a pastor and says, look, this is what's happening. I have this as evidence before we say, well, I don't know, you know, if I can rely on that. We also have to realize that this is a, a source of evidence. But see, I think this brings up a really important point is that most pastors probably don't have that level of training to recognize a domestic violence situation or even to know what questions to ask. So then they get these two people in the room and they just have this very muddy situation with different stories. Now you as somebody working in a social service context immediately have certain questions that you've been trained to ask and things to look for a restraining order, you know, evidence, police reports, how many times have these people called nine one one, you know, like there's some, there's some objective evidence there. Yeah. But I think that many pastors get stuck because they don't have the right training. What are your thoughts, Ariel? Yeah. Most often, you know, depending on the church or the denomination, um, they don't purposely seek out um, outside resources, like, you know, starting a, like a, a paper trail um, by reporting it to the police. You know, most of all, when Christian women um, are really being abused, they don't often seek counseling um, for themselves, specifically for the abuse. Oftentimes, abusive husbands will try to convince the wife that she is the problem. So the woman will come to counseling or seek or, you know, reach out to the pastor um, to fix themselves because they're just like, you know, she, she keeps hearing the message that, you know, um, she's the problem. This is the reason why, you know, she's the reason why he has these outbursts. She's the reason why he has this kind of anger. So in cases of abuse in the church specifically that end up in front of a pastor's desk or an elder or an, or somebody who ever, you know, counsels, um, they, it's normally in the couple's home church. So if she seeks help, she's probably hoping that that pastor, um, who is she considers a godly man, will, um, will see her pain, recognize what's happening, and then, you know, seek to intervene and help. Women tend to feel a lot of shame for what is happening in her home. So unless the right questions are asked, more than likely she won't open up to talk about what is going on. Probably not until, you know, things get really bad to the point where she feels unsafe for herself or her children. Um, And so pastors or elders in those in those kind of biblically sound churches where the, the, there, there are men pastors as they should be, um, if they don't have the training on what to look for, like you said, Crystal, or what kinds of questions to ask, or are not aware of their own male biases on how they interact with the husband and wife, the wife will end up feeling hopeless, um, and she'll and the husband will feel empowered, and the situation will probably get worse before it gets better, if it gets better at all. Um, when I was doing the DV training, um, we were pounded into our head that statistics show that a woman will contemplate leaving an abusive relationship. This is not even in the church. This is like just an you know, unbelieving world that, that, that she'll contemplate leaving her abusive relationship seven times before she actually has the courage to leave if she, if she leaves at all. Um, and those statistics are probably even higher for women who go to church on a consistent basis because Christian women tend to hear more messages of, of um, that, that 
to stay in their abusive relationships because of our identity in Christ, that we need to have this posture of selflessness and dying to ourselves and suffering for the sake of Christ. Endless forgiveness. Yes. Yeah. And the problem with those messages is that even though they are true in the context of a husband, an abusive husband situation, they are not true, not because the woman is exempt from growing in holiness, but because of Ephesians 2, which reminds us of God's grace and salvation, and Ephesians 5, which reminds us of, a hus- you know, of how husbands and wives should interact as members of God's kingdom. Um, since scripture compares, this is the most important thing for me, I think since scripture compares the relationship of Christ and the church to the husband and the wife, it is unsound theology to tell a wife to endure abuse from her husband who's supposed to love her like Christ loves the church, who is supposed to love his wife the way he loves his own body, who is supposed to nourish her and cherish her the way Christ does the church repeatedly. When a husband claims to be saved and, and he is, he's, either, he's either revealing that he is not saved when he's abusive, or maybe he's um, revealing that he's struggling to have self-control or self-restraint in regulating his emotions. So part of my counseling process is to figure out which one is at play. You know, is he saved and, or, or is, he, is he saved and he can't control his emotions or he's not saved. And that's why scripture is not like permeate, permeating um, his soul. Because um, Christ doesn't abuse the church. Christ doesn't humiliate the church. Christ doesn't beat the church. You know, Christ um, doesn't, doesn't treat the church the way some abusive husbands treat their wives. And so when you expect a wife to endure that kind of suffering from the one who is supposed to love her like Christ, it kind of sends this dysfunctional, toxic idea of what faith in Christ looks like. It not only destroys the relationship between the husband and the wife, but the children who grow up seeing their dad abuse their mom, or even have to endure abuse themselves um, from their father, it destroys their faith or, or hinders their faith completely. I work with so many women right now who grew up in these kinds of situations seeing their their mom get beat by their dad and the church has done nothing and then the kids walk away from the faith and and now they're now they're trying to come back to the faith but they don't know how to reconcile what they saw you know in their histories with their present faith in the lord now it gets very muddled when we excuse abuse um and expect a wife to um to endure suffering for the sake of christ that's just not sound theology at all Again, completely agree. And and especially looking at how kids get lost in the conversation of faith and the conversation of God as a father. And while my earthly father is abusive and is mean and doesn't treat me well. And so how do I reconcile my thoughts about my earthly father with my thoughts about God, the father and the idea that father is just the word itself is a bad word now. And yeah. so I would never want to relate God the Father, you know, as a as a child of DV, I wouldn't want to recognize or reconcile like God the Father as being my father. And, you know, at, at that point, it's kind of like, well, I might need to walk away because fathers aren't safe people. I think yeah. that's one of the things that I've seen um, in talking with kids who are struggling with their faith or who, you know, come to youth group, but then they go home to abusive situations. Yeah. And it's like, well, or, you know, even not, not even like physically abusive. It can be verbally abusive or father has walked out completely. Yeah. That idea of father 
gets very confusing for kids. It gets very, very confusing. And it got confusing for me, you know, when I was understanding, when I was trying to dig into um, some solid theology, um, this idea of father being someone I can trust and someone I can rely on and someone who I know is, has a protective nature, like all of that, all of those things were foreign concepts to me. And I had to, I had to learn anew what it meant to, to have a father as father, you know, God, father, um, because there was no point of reference for me to even, um, to even wade those waters because I didn't, I didn't know, like my father was absent. So for me, father in heaven also was absent. So if that was my reality, I couldn't even imagine what it was to, to have to experience father as abusive. So that's a whole, you know, ball game that, that is very complex and to kind of reconcile a child's faith who becomes an adult to father God, who is protector that, that some serious theological work that needs to get done because it's hard. But there is the reality going back to the pastor's office for a minute here is that, you know, I mean, maybe we need classes or workshops and there probably is some ministry that does this of workshops just for pastors to know what questions to ask in that moment, to, to, to know how to begin to arbitrate these issues and um, to sort out what the truth is. Like if if you're a ministry out there and you do this, please write to us Uh, because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that it could be helpful, helpful training Um, because you're getting it in the social service realm or the counseling realm, but pastors are often Mm -hmm. some of the first people that, that, victims go to and and they might not be totally prepared for that for that conversation and how to arbitrate that i think the challenge when when it comes to you know um that particular scenario is i i don't want to be against pastors who who counsel you know because that's part of it seems the job but i i oftentimes don't think pastors pastors have the right training if they're going to go into the role of of doing pastoral counseling and they get and they start wading in the waters of of um of social social work you know then then they need the right training for it and oftentimes you know they they come up with this idea that you know scripture is sufficient i think scripture is sufficient but when you're working with um physically abusive homes um then scripture is sufficient but at the same time, there needs to be other resources to help the family maneuver some of the stuff because it, it, you know, you can't just slap a Bible verse on on a, on a problem and and expect the problem to go away. That's just not how you use the Bible. And um, and pastors sometimes do that, you know. And I I don't like it when they do that. So yeah, I think the way I put it is that Scripture is the foundation. It is sufficient, and it will always be our foundation that we stand on. And as we stand on the foundation of scripture, we can also add in other resources and scripture will be able to arbitrate whether this yeah. resource is something that will be helpful or not, because it will either align with scripture or it won't. Um, now, when you said that pastors aren't always sufficient to be doing the, the psychological counseling, the social service side of it, I completely agree. But and nor should they like they they're we can't expect every pastor to have 
every answer regarding everything that is going to come across their doorstep. So to me, it's more of like, well, how do we form a conglomerate of resources? How can I partner with, you know, the five churches that are in my city so that are biblically minded? I'm not talking about go to the progressive church. They got the Black Lives Matter flag. Like, I'm not talking about all that. But like, if we know that there are even three solid biblical Christ centered, historically Christian churches in your area. How can you partner together too often? We as Christians in our churches, we become an Island. We yeah. become the, the, well, I'm the pastor of this church and I have to provide the resources and this is just my church. Well, we're supposed to be a body of believers. And so if we're a body of believers, how can we help share the load among one another? If I know that over here at, you know, Christ Christian church, they have an awesome team of people already set up. Well, how can I usher my people there where they are going to receive godly biblical wisdom to be able to strengthen their marriage? Too often what I have seen is that because we're not sharing the load and thinking, well, this is, these are my parishioners and these are my people and I need to shepherd them. Well, then the, the quality or, um, the support that is actually needed isn't available and it's not coming through. And this is where we do get people trapped in conversations of abuse or cycles of abuse because they're not actually getting a lot of the information or resource that they need. That could just be down the block if you were to, you know, partner with or have other conversations with um, people in other churches. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's helpful. Um, I know that when it comes to trying to like wade the waters of investigation and trying to figure out um, who, you know, who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth. I think, you know, um, like Monique said, um, um, having the pastors that, that ask the right questions, um, you know, investigation is all about asking the right questions, but in a way that is not, um, like picking sides automatically, you know, part of my personal intake assessment, I blatantly ask questions that relate to abuse. I ask, you know, I ask those that I'm counseling, do you feel safe in your relationship? Do you feel understood in your relationship? I ask, um, has anyone resorted to physical violence in the relationship? Um, I ask about childhood trauma, childhood homes. Um, what were those, what were those situations like? How were their parents handled how did their how did their parents handle disagreement? How did their parents handle family stress? And how did their parents family hardship? Um, I ask about um, substance abuse problems and mental health problems if that was in their home or if it's in their current home. Um, I ask about how their salvation and redemption in Christ informs how they interact within their marriage with each other and their relationship with their kiddos. I ask them to um, share personal expectations that they want from their spouse as it pertains to home life, chores, parenting, and even sex. I ask how they handle stress. I ask how they handle when their expectations are not being met. Do they become confrontational? Do they give grace? Do they feel cheated because their wife or their husband is not meeting their expectations? Um, I think asking the right questions is crucial for investigating what is really going on in the home. And I think nothing is too trivial um, to ask when it comes to trying to get a clear picture of the dynamics of the home. Um, it's a skill to ask the right questions in the right kind of way, because there can be hope, there can be no hint that a side is being taken. And oftentimes that happens. Um, 
And if a pastor is not aware that that's happening, then they could immediately take a side, like, you know, well, why aren't you like taking the trash out? Or why aren't you washing the dishes when your husband's home, you know, when your husband gets home? Um, so I'm constantly looking for, for understanding the dynamics of the home. Um, I also observe like body language and facial expressions. You know, does the wife sink down when her husband is talking about his expectations? You know, does the husband exhibit this arrogance or self-righteousness when he shares how his wife is failing to live up to his expectations and vice versa? I've seen it go both ways. So I'm constantly looking for verbal, physical, and facial cues to see the dynamics of the relationship. And pastors oftentimes don't even know what to look for. You know, I know from experience, husbands will often shut down the conversation or will tell me they think my questions are irrelevant um, when abuse is actually occurring in the home. They don't like to be challenged. Um, I've had husbands literally walk out of the counseling session in anger and the wife will end up calling me back, telling me, you know, that her husband doesn't want to come back to counseling. Um, so even though I might speculate um, abuse is happening, if the wife doesn't come out and say right out that abuse is happening, there's nothing that I can do or even a pastor can do. If you don't ask the right questions and you won't get any of the right answers that you need um, um, to, to see what's going on in the marriage. So if the abuser claims to be a believer, like we have to go back to scripture and tell them to remember that the grace that they've received from God um, is real. They might struggle in regulating their anger, um, but if they're saved, the Holy Spirit makes them aware of it and they, they want to be able to self-regulate. They want to be able to work on their anger issues. Um, but if a husband has terrorized his family for years, his wife and children are not obligated in my opinion, to stay while he works on learning to control his anger. You know, praise God that the spirit is telling him that his anger that leads to abuse um, um, towards the people that he loves, you know, is a problem for him. But I don't think it is wise or, or helpful to expect the, the wife and the children to stay while he's learning what triggers his anger, especially if what triggers his anger are his wife and children. So I think it is unwise to just assume that she needs to stay just for the sake of the marriage while he's learning to manage his anger or, or his, um, his lack of abilities to self-regulate. Hope that makes sense. Yeah. That, that answer was gold. Mm -hmm. That was super helpful. Now yeah. Monique was just a lot of head nodding. Over no, here. I, I just, I, <laughs> there's so much that I was agreeing with. Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate the conversation about asking questions. One of the things that, um, or I guess techniques I would use in asking questions is how many different ways can I ask this same question mm -hmm. and not necessarily to frustrate someone, but to see if the answer comes across the same, you know, every time. And sometimes I could ask the same question. I might have 50 questions or if you do an intake or like a psychosocial evaluation on somebody for something, you know, that when you get all the way to the end and you bring it back around, you know, did we get, did, did we really get the same answer at question 17 as I did on question 93? You know what I mean? Like there, there are so many different ways or um, approaches to this. But again, to your point, if you aren't trained in this, if you haven't, haven't really investigated your own process and the way that you tend to listen to things that can filter how you listen. It can filter um, what you hear. And yeah. so, yeah, I just, I love the, the whole question 
aspect of it. And, and then, you know, being in a position where these same questions that I'm asking to you, I'm going to ask to you as well. Th- these questions aren't just, you know, For both the husband and the, the wife. husband and the wife. These aren't just, you know, these are wife questions. These are husband questions and things like that. They might be worded a little bit different, but it's going to be the same question um, throughout. Well, let me ask you this question. And I'd love to hear both of you weigh in on this is, We haven't really defined what abuse is because I'm hearing an increasing amount of conversations. And I think it's the influence of the critical social theories coming in that's redefining abuse is, well, anytime there's a power structure or a power dynamic, and then the person who's in the oppressed class gets their feelings hurt, then then we're in the realm of abuse. But, But... I would love to have a more clear definition of of what qualifies as abuse. Like, is there a, like the social service textbook definition for that? Or, or how does that work? Yeah, so I know for me, when when the right questions are asked, then when you get the dynamics of the relationship that is clear, clearer, um, I think it's helpful Um, I think that oftentimes pastors don't want to ask those questions because they don't want to be too invasive with the, with the questions because they don't want to give, they want to be able to give the husband the benefit of the doubt that he's not abusing. Um, And they usually take what the husband says at face value without probing too much. I don't think that's helpful because abusers will often be really nice in public. So it can, so they can easily manipulate others with their charm or their charisma or even their knowledge of the Bible. I've have a, I've had a lot of those experiences with couples where that were the spouse will you know weaponize or use their knowledge of the Bible to kind of like you know fall under the radar. But abuse is basically any repeated pattern of behavior that terrorizes family members. It includes obvious objective forms of physical violence or threats of physical violence towards the spouse or the children. It can also include abuse that is more subjective in nature where it's verbal abuse, relational abuse, emotional abuse, and even spiritual cruelty, which destroys the mental, relational, emotional, and spiritual stability of anyone in the family. Um, Drug abuse or alcohol abuse is a form of abuse in the marriage context, as these addictions can create like opportunities for a spouse to be, to lie or to be consistently deceitful, violent, or financially unstable, making the family feel very volatile in their ability to kind of sustain itself. Um, I would even consider gambling addiction to be a form of abuse because it can lead the family to financial ruin. Of course, lying is often part of the gambling addiction. I know this is very controversial, but I feel personally that porn addiction can also be abusive since a husband is committing sexual immorality with a screen um, and then they expect their wives to mimic that behavior that they see on the screen, which I think dishonors the wife considerably. Um, I know that many Christians deny the reality that husbands can be sexually abusive with their wives, but it does happen, especially when the husband is addicted to porn. Um, Sexual abuse towards a child in a home falls under, for me, a different category of abuse. This should never be tolerated or endured for any length of time. If there's any suspicion that a pastor thinks is sexual abuse is happening in the home towards a child, it is crucial for the wife to separate the children from their abusing spouse immediately. Sexual abuse is the kind of abuse that 
that needs immediate intervention. If a pastor comes across any case where he thinks it's suspected, he needs to stop family counseling and um, it make, make a priority to get the victim to safety as quick as possible. Um, there needs to be an active and intentional attempt to separate the child from the, um, the, the, the perpetrator by seeking outside church counseling to determine the degree of the kind of abuse that happened. Um, sexual abuse counseling is a specialized kind of counseling and should never include asking the victim to forgive right away, especially if it's a child. Um, the consequences of sexual abuse is mentally and emotionally complex. And the victims often experience um, physiological and um, psychological symptoms and consequences for years. So this is not to say that at some point, like when a child like becomes an adult and they want to move towards forgiveness, um, that they can do that. But at the time that they're a child, I don't think that's helpful. It's actually abusive to do that. The problem is that when cases of sexual abuse land on a pastor's desk, the heaviness of the situation is often like, whoa, this is big. I don't know how to deal with this. And it often paralyzes the person that's trying to help them because of the gravity of the situation. Um, pastors or elders who retain any information on this information, you know, that when they retain like or gain any information that this is happening in the home, they need to um, just be able to go into action. And, you know, if they have to call the police, call the, you know, call the police, um, but they need to really make sure that the victim is no longer having access to their perpetrator. And oftentimes pastors are not willing to do that. They want to keep the family intact as they're trying to like gain more information. I don't think that's helpful. I think separating the child from the abuser is it needs to be priority and pastors aren't often willing to, to go there um, with that situation. Gosh, again, you, you said a lot that um, I, I definitely agree with in, in regards to, and I'll start here in regards to the sexual abuse issue and especially where children are involved. If I'm not mistaken, when I was working in church, pastors were still mandated reporters. Mm -hmm. And so the issue of, you know, getting outside counseling and making sure that they have sexual counseling and all of that for a child, that still to me is secondary. The, the first priority, like you're saying, is safety for the child and especially as a mandated reporter, because that can... And, and not to go into all of that, but that can bring legal ramifications upon your church. Yeah. That can bring legal ramifications upon a pastor if they fail to report. If it is known that a pastor fails to report abuse, sexual abuse, um, and other kinds of abuses too against children. But I know when, when I was working in church and, and in so social service being bivocational, there was, you know, a very clear... Um, clear line in the sand of what was to be reported and to who and by when and all of these things. So you definitely hit it on the head with, you know, as a pastor and I think children's pastors might see this a lot more, or hear of it a lot more. If, I, if the parents in my case, anyway, a lot of my kids came to church, but their parents didn't come. And so I would hear different stories from kids and 
you know, now here I am in a mandated reporter situation. It's not my job or the pastor's job at that point to arbitrate or to say if this is real or not real, because at that point it's been reported and I have to, I am legally required to take the next step. So I think that's part of that whole sexual, you know, or abuse situation with children that just takes things up to an entirely different level. Um, in, In regards to the different types or, or forms of abuse, I remember learning and and um, having the conversation of like the five major different types of abuses. So you had like emotional, physical, sexual. Um, gosh, and I just was running through them in my head, and now I've lost two: emotional, physical, sexual, emotional. You already said that one. Emotional. I already said emotional. Yeah. Um, verbal, and then there's like one more. But and everything that Ariel is talking about, like can be placed in one of these categories. And so like, if you have someone who struggles with alcoholism and things like that, that could be um, placed under a category of potential, the potential for like an emotional abuse, but it could also be placed under the category of a potential for physical abuse. And so we look at these different categories and how they can be highlighted or brought out in an abuser. Um, But the, the definitions for these different things, um, I think, yes, like this is, these are the definitions, but, but it gets subjective, especially when we're seeing this to your point in the conversation of trauma, because while, while you look at something with children, like the ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, um, and it says, these are the things that qualify as traumatic. Just because I go through that does not necessarily mean that it's going to be traumatizing. Like I'm so going to have of those, some of the reactions of a trauma response. So some of those things would be like if a parent is incarcerated or parents okay. get divorced or a parent, parent dies, dies or, or you face physical threat. You you have um, or you see you witness parent something jo- happening. Yeah. Parent job loss. You know, a, a critical move. I like. There's. I'm imagining there's, there's some objective things that that count. But what you've taught me is that just because you go through something doesn't mean that it's traumatizing for each person in the same way. Yes, or that I am guaranteed to have a traumatic experience. Experience or a traumatic result just because I had some I had something happen that was clinically defined as being a traumatic experience okay. doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to have a traumatic response to it. Yeah. But does that make sense, Ariel? Are you you, you yeah. tracking with me? Yeah. So so what 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 do, what how you can like understand that concept a little bit better? You know, I I, I completely affirm the ACEs study, and I, I I find it very like a very valuable tool when dealing with with um, with clients who exhibit traumatic um, symptoms. Um, and Monique is right; not every traumatic experience leads to traumatic symptoms. What what kind of you know influences that or are the other traumatic experiences a person has. Yes. So like that ACEs study, it basically looks at trauma from an interpersonal family scenario. So if you have um, chronic, consistent trauma within the family structure, there's a, there's a tendency of that person to exhibit traumatic symptoms later on in life or even during their teens or, or, or in their early 20s or maybe even later, you know, so... Um, but what also influences or hinders the traumatic symptoms showing up 
or any resiliency buffer kind of situations. You know, like you can have someone who grew up in the hood, but they had like a mentor that that um, that kind of buffered what was going on at home. That could be um, that could be an effective way to to combat maybe symptoms showing up in the future. Not all the time. Sometimes it does. So it so the way the way that we need to see traumatic symptoms, it's very personalized. It's like, I just was writing about this in a book that I'm writing on trauma for the church. You know, it's, it's you know, trauma symptoms are like, like our fingerprint. They're very unique, they're very individual, and it's based by per person. So just because I experienced this, these, these incidences of trauma throughout my life, somebody else could have experienced the same things, but if they had some kind of resiliency buffer to kind of interfere with um, those traumatic experiences, it could have like buffered their, their nervous system from exhibiting some of those traumatic symptoms. So um, it's very personalized. And I think and this is the reason why it's unhelpful for like, let's say a pastor, you know, had an abusive mom or, or experienced, you know, childhood, you know, trauma growing up. And he's like, well, look at me, I'm good. You know, you should, you'll be good too, you know. Or even saying things like all children are resi- resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That's kind of an overstatement. It's a have- very, very small percentage of the planet population okay. of people who are naturally resilient. Like, okay. I, I, it, gosh, when I studied this, it was less than 15% of all the people on the planet are naturally resilient. Like Ariel saying, like there's there, if you, you can have a, a resiliency help or a resiliency buffer, buffer. like yeah. a mentor or a group of people or things like that. But or to, a grandma yeah, or something like but that. But to say that all children are, you know, just naturally resilient, that's, that's very incorrect. Yeah. There's a very small percentage of naturally resilient people. And, you know, when I was working in those, those shelters where, where, you know, all the children were physically abused or sexually abused and were placed in these, in these homes that, that we would care for them. Um, we would hear this, this phrase a lot, like these children were very resilient, but at the same time, we were also looking at them from that snapshot of them as children. Like we don't know what it looked like when they became teenagers or adults. So, um, so just because someone, um, you know, exhibits a certain degree of resiliency in the face of adversity doesn't mean that it's not going to impact them later on in life. You know, it will, and it can show up in personality. You know, you can have um, someone who experienced, you know, trauma as a child, you know, grow up to be high functioning, but then their personality exhibits qualities where the trauma is interfering with their ability to either regulate their, um, their anger or their, you know, grace or their patience or even having compassion, compassionate skills or empathy, you know, so, so even though they people are exhibiting resiliency effects, does it mean that resiliency carries over for the rest of their life? Because it eventually will show up in some way, shape or form. I've seen that over and over and over again, even with high functioning people, if that makes sense. This is so educational. This, okay. this is really helpful, especially having both of you. Um, so now I'm going to kind of continue to press things along here because I'm imagining some some objections that that people could have in listening to the both of you. You know, it you're you're telling us to to ask questions, to ask questions of of both parties, to look for objective evidence, to to look for um 
patterns of behavior. I mean, there's a lot of probing that you're you're both advocating for. But but we're living in the age of the the Me Too movement. We're living in the age of believe all victims. You know, all it takes is for a woman to come forward, have a sad story, and she'll be believed. And if you don't believe her, then there's kind of a uh demonization process for those people that, that don't believe her right away but if you do believe her there's a demonization process on the other side you know that that you're just la- allowing a, a toxic masculinity bias to control your thoughts and so i guess i'm i'm trying to think about um how do we take victims claims seriously but kind of not fall into the believe all victims trap. So I would love to hear some thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I find it, I found it interesting, you know, how the Me Too movement kind of like um, <clears throat> disrupted all of this kind of um, trauma intervention type of stuff. Um, the Me Too movement was, you know, is a type of social justice quote unquote revolution or whatever it is, you know, started by, you know, a woman, um, Tarana Burke or Tawana Burke in, um, in 2006, she, she wrote a book and I, and I bought it and I read it to see like what, what her philosophy is. Um, she, so, so she was raped at seven and nine, you know, by a neighborhood boy. Um, and, um, the Me Too movement was started. She started advocating. She was a she was um, an activist, and she started advocating for um, sexual abuse victims um, in the communities that she was doing ministry or not. It wasn't ministry. It was more like activism work. Um, so when she started interacting with sexual abuse victims in her community, um, she wanted a way to connect to them. So she, you know, she she wanted to let them know, well, I've experienced this too. And then she started doing. Um, um, Me Too workshops to to help support victims. So initially, the Me Too movement, whatever, like it started out with good intentions, but then and then 2017 happened, and um, it took a very different turn. Um, Alyssa Milano had <clears throat> a tweeted um, a Me Too something regarding the Harvey Weinstein fiasco stuff, and the Me Too movement kind of morphed into this encompassing sexual. So it wasn't no longer just sexual abuse. It started to encompass like sexual harassment in the workplace, um, um, specifically in regards to Hollywood and how they interacted with each other. Um, so the Me Too movement hashtag um, is now used as kind of like this umbrella to cover all women concerns in the workplace and social settings um, with, a, with, with an emphasis on childhood sexual abuse um, along with sexual harassment, along with date rape, along with work rape, and even inappropriate banter that women have to hear from men, you know, um, in either workplace or social place settings. So interestingly, during um, Burke's early activist life, she was working in these kind of lower income communities, and her own daughter at the time was sexually abused by another beloved neighborhood teen, and so her, her daughter now identifies as um, non-binary. So the Me Too movement now um, easily kind of marries into the advocacy for LB, LGBTQ plus whatever communities. I don't know 
if I missed anything. Um, so in regards to believing all women because of like those believe all women or Me Too movement, I think there should be a degree of caution um, in the church specifically um, because those things together, merging those things together are unhelpful because um, you, you can't advocate for all of those issues by at the same time by wanting to um, like help women, but you're not really even helping women. Like, again, I think I, I said it earlier, you know, that sexual abuse is very different from sexual harassment or other kinds of abuses. Like, um, like when a child experiences sexual abuse, developmentally, um, it impacts their little developing brain and how, and, and, and just really confuses their sense of identity. Um, that's not to say that a woman who is raped is not as damaging to her psyche um, and her identity, but but it's it's still damaging, but it's not as damaging. And I hate to even say that because I'm sure people are not going to like that. But you know, but child sexual abuse is very different from sexual harassment or even um, women who experience rape. When women who experience rape, um, they're often cognizant of what is going about what what is about to happen to them. Their nervous system will go into the the fight, flight, or freeze mode because they're like, okay, I know what's fixing to happen. So, and then they, and then their nervous system prepares their body to protect themselves. And a child who is sexually abused, who's sexually abused, they they immediately won't go into fight or flight because the perpetrator is probably older and bigger, or maybe worse, someone that they know. So even though a rape victim will know what was done to them was wrong, a child, a child sexual abuse victim will not know what happened to them. They don't even have any frame of reference or language to put to what just happened to them. Their, their developing nervous system will become overwhelmed um, neurobiologically as well as psychologically, and they won't have a way to process it because they don't even have thoughts on how to understand it. So both like adult rape victims and child sexual abuse victims um, both will tend to feel shame and both will tend to blame themselves. Um, and they'll probably not end up saying anything to anybody because of the shame. Um, but this is very different from women who feel offended at the workplace when men engage in sexually inappropriate jokes or innuendos. innuendos. I think it's, it's dangerous to conflate all of them together in, under like this believe all women kind of thing because I don't think that's helpful. Um, I'm not minimizing at all the difficulty of um, those circumstances when women have to hear inappropriate jokes at their workplace, but it does not compare to the neurobiological, psychological, or even emotional damage to what a child goes through when they've been sexually abused, um, or when a woman is raped, or when a wife or a child are being abused by the husband. So I think it's unhelpful to kind of like put all those women concerns under one umbrella and just say we need to just believe everything all the time. You know, as a counselor, I'm pretty familiar with the kinds of questions that need to be asked to determine the validity of abuse um, because I'm specifically a trauma counselor. So those who come to me are finally ready to talk about their count their trauma. So um, I don't go into a situation when I'm counseling a, a person and not believe them. I do believe them. But the goal of counseling is to help those who've experienced abuse to help them not see themselves as perpetual victims to their past. And social media outrage kind of encourages that, which I don't find helpful at all. 
Yes. What a yeah. what a careful answer. No, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. I think um, while we definitely want to, you know, not just push victims of any form of abuse to the side and be like, well, until you can, you know, blankety blank, you know, I I just don't believe you, you know, but I do think that there is definite need for caution around movements like the Me Too movement. Um, Because, well, one in particular is because I I personally have seen vindictive women Mm -hmm. who have been like, well, and me too. It wasn't you. You know what I mean? Like you don't belong in this movement. That That is an untruth. So we need to, to have clarity around that. But then when we get into a position of conversation of we have to believe all women, well, what is that, um, what is that saying, even in lack of words, about what we do with or for about men? How do we believe men? How do we have conversations with men? See, again, we don't want to put ourselves into such a picture where we believe all women and now we don't believe any men. So there has to be some kind of balance. There has to be a conversation of what do we do with humans? What do we do with people as we navigate some of these roads? Because the, the Me Too movement in many circles would say, well, you know, we don't need to listen. We don't need to consider the man because of patriarchy, because power of structures. power structures, because of male masculine dominance and all of these things. Well, right. in the body of Christ, we don't we don't participate like that. Like in culture, you in culture, you don't want to, you know, be over here with us. That's cool. Do you. But in the body of Christ, I'm going to participate with my brothers differently than mm-hmm. than, you know, I would if I was just out in the world. The expectation of how we treat each other has to be different. It has to be according to scripture. It can't just be like, well, culture's saying me too, so hey, me three. You know, that isn't how we participate. Yeah, there was an article that I wrote um, or that I read um, where Burke um, was sharing that she had ended up at a barbecue like later on in her life where the perpetrator that molested her or, or raped her at I'm not sure if it was a seven year when she was seven or nine, but weren't what the guys when the guy showed up at the barbecue at one of the times that she was raped. Um, and so he was a police officer and he had two daughters of his own. And she had um, a lot of conflicting feelings on how to even process that. Um, interestingly, many who um, promote the Me Too movement would have outed that guy like right away without any consideration for any any possible current repercussions on that guy's life. Um, and that's the danger of the Me Too movement is that being sexually abused does not erase a victim's sin nature and an aspect of counseling and care should be to help the victim to get to the root of their symptoms and not allow their abuse to fill the victim with untendered perpetual rage or anger, like what Monique said, or vindictiveness or revenge. Um, none of that is helpful to the victim and social media Um, outrage actually promotes all that stuff without actually doing any real healing. I don't think that's wise or unhelpful for any victim to just be perpetually outraged all of the time and then look for offenses when there is no offense. Wow. That's a powerful answer. I I feel like that could be a whole show right there of just helping victims, like understanding, like, you know, how the traps Mm -hmm. the the mental traps that that you can fall into. Um, I want to go back to your point a a minute ago though, about men, because 
the world tells us we shouldn't care about men. Men are toxic. Uh, power structures. Men are always the oppressor. And one thing I forgot to mention at the top of the show is that Ariel has her own journey of coming out of the critical social theories. That's that's part of her story as well. And that's actually how she and I first met. But the world is very busy telling us that we should devalue men. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering in your experience um, and in Ariel's experience, have you seen men that you believe were victims of abuse? Because the world tells us that's an impossible scenario, mm -hmm. according to the critical social theories. But I'm wondering, you know, if we're going to think about one another as fellow humans or as brothers and sisters in the Lord, how do I think about that issue? I would say there are two specific incidents. So I haven't seen this a lot. I think even me knowing of two is a lot. But just because two sounds like a lot does not mean that those should be negated. And so um, do I know of any, do I think this happens? Yes, it does happen. It does happen to men. There are women who hit men. There are women who berate, like, and, like verbally abuse men. And I'm not saying that, you know, well, never mind. I won't even go down that path. But there, there, this does happen to men. And having that conversation or an openness to the consideration that a man could possibly be in a DV situation, I think, is important. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, I, I do think that culture would push us in the road if we don't need to care about men. We don't need to, you know, ask them about their feelings. We don't need to ask them, you know, if they are safe. Because, well, you're six two and you're two hundred pounds and da 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 da. When we aren't looking at the overall picture of abuse, just because a wife may not be able to, you know, physically tackle her husband and, you know, beat him does not mean that he isn't a victim of abuse in, 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 in another regard. It is a very, very small percentage. The fact, like I said, that I know too, it, that's a lot. That To okay. me, that's a lot. I don't know what you would say, Ariel. Yeah, I would say, you know, when I had, when I was working with um, perpetrator domestic violence classes, um, I think for every four classes of male perpetrators, there were one or two of female classes. And I, and I taught one of the female classes. Um, I know I, because there was a room of, I was working with 20 women who were, you know, court ordered to attend these classes. Um, because they were perpetrators, they um, resorted to violence with their relationships. Um, so oftentimes when women are perpetrators, they, they come from either violent homes or they were abused in some way, shape or form when they were children, either neglect or they saw physical abuse happening in the home. Um, I've worked with female perpetrators and every single one of them had histories of abuse and they just got to a place where they're just like, enough is enough. I'm not going to take abuse anymore. What happens with abuse when you grow up in abusive homes or you have, you know, childhood histories of abuse, you, you tend to have this kind of hypervigilance um, view lens that, that you wear with you everywhere you go. So you take offense with, with if even things that are not abusive, they'll take offense to it and they'll think it's abusive because they're in that kind of hypervigilant state. Um, so part of my job as a counselor was teaching them to separate what was done to them in the past and learn how to advocate and navigate um, for themselves in healthy ways that do not resort to violence. Most often, 
men who abuse also come from abusive and neglectful homes, but the difference is that women will often abuse men who they know won't hit back or the man knows he better not hit back because he'll end up arrested and women know this. And so they'll, you know, if, if, if she feels offended in any way, shape or form, she'll resort to abusing the person that she's in a relationship with. So um, it's very real that women can become perpetrators of physical abuse. I work with this one couple where the wife reached out to me and um, she was trying to explain to me that her husband was abusive and, X, Y, and Z kind of ways. So when I started working with them, she presented in the counseling session very passive and very like, you know, docile. And um, whenever she brought up situations where her husband, her husband would counter some of her, you know, you know, his situations with her, like he would be like, well, you did this and then you did that. And so at one point she got so frustrated that like I was not picking her side over his side and he was, you know, sharing some stuff that she was doing. She literally stood up in the counseling session and like started screaming at him from like this posture of like, I don't know, like she was going to start beating up on him. So it was very obvious that they both had issues and they both lacked self-control. So, but, so it's very helpful to understand that it can happen to both men and women, and you have to kind of know what to look for. Now, I want to go back, Ariel, to something you said earlier that um, sometimes it takes the uh, the abuse victim seven times uh, of either like thinking of leaving or trying to leave. Um, maybe they keep going back, but it it takes them about seven seven times before it they really are able to be strong and, and, and leave for real to, to, to permanently leave. And we aren't going to arbitrate on this podcast, you know, biblical teaching on divorce. We're just talking about separation issues of safety issues of, you know, getting help interventions and all of that. Um, But I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or advice for pastors or even friends over coffee, you know, like, when do you counsel somebody like, yeah, you should stick this out or you need to get to safety? Like, like, how do we begin to think about that in the moment? Yeah, I think it's really helpful to understand that the complexity of that love abuse dynamics that I talked about earlier, women often don't, you know, go into a marriage relationship thinking, oh, I'm going to want to leave the spouse once he stops beating me, you know, like they don't think that way. So they just want the abuse to end when they find themselves in, in an abusive situation. Um, they want their spouse to change and no longer resort to violence when they're angry. Um, so they'll often endure abuse in silence for pretty a long time before they said, okay, like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Maybe because they see now that it's impacting the, the children's mental health. So when a spouse finally tells someone that she's thinking about wanting to leave or she has a plan to leave, um, I think it's helpful for, for pastors to be able to support her when that happens. Um, when the help doesn't come from a pastor who can help, or when she's blamed for provoking her husband's anger, she might, like I said earlier, she'll become hopeless and, and then she'll just feel stuck in that relationship. So once abuse is disclosed, then the pastor or whoever it is that's counseling her must always give her the option to leave without accusation. Um, she should be given um, support throughout the whole process because she is the one who has been betrayed by her husband through the abuse. 
The husband needs to know that he has betrayed his wife and the family's trust because of the violence that he exhibits in the home and that she is free to leave the marriage if she so chooses. He needs to see the seriousness of, of this particular offense or these offenses that he's done over the years in order to provoke a desire to change. When the blame is placed on the wife for not meeting her husband's expectations, instead of looking to the one that actually lacks self-control, which is the husband who's abusive, the husband will never see the seriousness of his own behavior and the consequences that result, which is fracturing his family. If he is given, if he, if he is given permission to blame someone else, like his wife, for his lack of self-control and self-regulation, um, whoever's counseling him, pastors, elders, or anybody like family, friends, they are actually possibly speaking against the Holy Spirit because the whole, when, when you're born again, the Holy Spirit, I always tell my clients, the Holy Spirit is like a mirror. Like he holds up a mirror to you, like to self-reflect on how you do not reflect Christ. And if I know that to be true, then a husband who's claiming Christ is not becoming self-aware of how his abuse is harming his family. Then, then, and and if a pastor says, ignore that, she has to stay, then you're acting in contrary to what the spirit could be telling a wife to say she needs to leave. You know, so I think there needs to be some, some support for the women who want the wives who want to leave. And pastors need to encourage this because the seriousness of, of what I talked about early, that, really, that relationship between the husband and the wife reflecting Christ and the church. Um, I don't think we want to create unsound theology in order to keep marriages together. I just don't think that's healthy. Yeah. The only thing I would um, probably add to that is that that is also true for, for men who are, who find themselves in those situations. I, in one of the the cases that I um, have worked with, um, it was an extremely severe situation, but I also think that there comes with being a man um, that is potentially experiencing domestic violence, especially a physical form of domestic violence where you don't talk about anyone, you talk about shame, you know, like there, there's yeah. a, a huge level of shame and things like that. And, um, you know, you, you at some point would have hoped that, um, you know, they would have gotten out. They would have chosen to to take some measures to separate themselves for safety and their kids and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's the only thing I would have added is, is you know, it, while this is mainly usually a woman's thing, like we see this man to woman, it does go woman to man as well. And those same um, yeah. those same thoughts should apply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and it's probably even harder for the man to have to admit to um, his pastoral leadership that his wife is abusing him this way, because, I mean, there's shame even when women are involved or even when children are involved. But when a, when a husband who's supposed to lead and he finds himself in, in an abusive relationship with the wife, that that probably evokes a lot of um, unique kinds of shame that that um, keeps him from admitting to what's happened in the home because of this whole leadership quality that, that are often placed on men to lead your families well. And he can't even like do that because his wife is physically abusive towards him. So yeah, it goes both ways. I'm thinking about how churches can help support these families in these times of emergency urgency. I'm thinking, you know, that, um, thinking about my own mother and, and her situation, Mm -hmm. 
um, and, you know, what would have helped her, you know, yeah. in, uh, in, she was so afraid to even talk about it, you know, she never went to her pastor, you know, she felt like she was totally on her own to, to solve these problems. Um, but I'm thinking about, you know, uh, safety, you know, churches could, you know, if some churches own an extra home, you know, or they, they can provide some kind of temporary safety that they have resources at the, at the ready. Maybe if there's somebody in the congregation who has expertise, like the both of you have in dealing with domestic violence, um, situations and clients that, that the pastor knows who that person is. The pastor knows who, who they can call in the church, you know, in, in an emergency situation and they need support. I mean, I think it's important to think through these things a little bit proactively of how can we as a church do better to, to support the people in, in our congregation? Because according to the statistics I've read, one in seven families is dealing with abuse. Does that seem too high no. to you? Is that about no. what you've, you're, you see as yeah. well? And so that makes me think that when I'm looking down the pew on Sunday and I look all the way down the pew, there's a chance that some family in that pew is experiencing, you know, difficulty. Yeah. I would agree with that statistic, you know, I think, and I think that's the challenge is that, is that pastors are not well equipped to one, understand those statistics, um, accept those statistics, and then what to do with them. You know, I think it's really important for a pastor to get trained in some kind of domestic violence um, training on, or sexual abuse training. And, but if he feels like he can't get that kind of training or spend the time to recognize domestic violence or sexual abuse, identify men and women in the church who are willing to get specialized training in that area and who are able to help in those kinds of complex situations um, when they arise, not if they arise, when they arise. I think pastors or church leaders should never, I think another thing that they should never ask the victims for precise details. And this is the reason why. So when, when somebody experiences traumatic events, they tend to not be, they, they tend to not be able to remember like everything in a precise, exact way, um, especially due to that frontal part of the brain, the cortex that shuts down um, as a protective mechanism um, when you're experiencing traumatic events. It's the thinking part of the brain that helps a person kind of make sense of what's going on with them and around them. And if something is coming in that's super traumatic, um, that frontal part, that frontal thinking brain kind of shuts down as a protective measure. So the details of abuse tend to come in like chunks throughout the life or when, when they're trying to recount that. And if a pastor is not aware of how the brain works in, in relation to traumatic events, they'll just be like, well, your story doesn't make sense. So then you must be lying. So I don't think that's helpful either. And if pastors um, got the training and got some basic rudimentary understanding of how the brain works in relation to trauma experiences, that would kind of give them um, another you know tool in their empathy box to to see it for, for what it is and not immediately start to troubleshoot and problem solve um, when, they, when they ought not to. They should just be able to be supportive and offer resources. And, and they have to separate families, separate families for the safety of, 
of, of the, the victims involved. So this kind of training is not for everyone. It's heavy. It's emotionally taxing. I know when I was going through it, I cried through a lot of it because I'm just like, it resonated so much with me, but you know, I was in it. So I was there. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. Um, it needs a lot of um, inherent compassionate people. You know, they have to like have this inward compassion to deal with these kinds of situations um, in a God honoring way. Um, there has to be no room to see the victim as culpable. There has to be no room to see the perpetrator as too far from God's grace, but that doesn't negate the reality of having to face the consequences for the abuse. And I think pastors miss that. They want to apply God's grace right away and, and kind of pretend consequences don't exist. And I don't think that's helpful or wise. And it could also be a form of abuse. Very good. Well, thank you, Ariel, for doing this. I'm very, you, you brought such great content. Uh, I know that many people are going to benefit from this. They're going to share it with their pastors, share it with their friends. I know it's really going to help a lot of people and hopefully it'll provide some interventions for some people that need it. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was good. It was good to talk to you guys. You guys just let me go on and on and on. That's all right. No, it's all good. That was great. Tell people how they can follow you on Instagram or Twitter. Um, Twitter. Um, let me see. I don't even know what my name is on Twitter. <laughs> um, That's all right. On Twitter, I am just Ariel Bovat. Um, right. um, if you ask my husband, um, he would say our name is Bovet, but like he's He's French Canadian, so I just say Bovet. Um, <laughs> and on Instagram, what is my name? Oh, R-E-L-G Bov, B-O-V. So, All right. Yeah. So people can follow your wit and wisdom there on social media. Thank you so much, Ariel. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. We'll Take see you care. Guys. Bye. Bye. Wow. I learned a ton. Yes. I felt like I'm... I think this is going to be so helpful to people. Hope so. I, I feel like there are so few people having this conversation in the Christian sphere. Yeah. Um, between the two of you, I'm so glad I decided to do it this way and interview both of you. You both brought just such great experience and content. So thank you. Yeah, no, you know, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I think if anything, you know, for any pastor who happens to see this, you know, my heart and I would say, Ariel's as well, is, um, you know, not to overwhelm the pastor, yeah. but to empower the pastor to mm. understand that, you know, it. you might not be the one to go to that training. Maybe you identify uh, a, a couple in your church mm. or a group of people in your church who can um, attend like a domestic violence training to, to be equipped with what questions to ask or how to come alongside of a couple whose marriage may be in distress um, or at the beginning stages of distress. You know, how do we support brothers and sisters in the body um, in their marriage? You know, I think um, in, in a lot of, in a lot of, churches or context, you know, we're like, marriage is the goal. You know, once I get married and it's going to be good. And then you have these little people who come along and then, you know, I have my kids and we're going to be good. And people don't always talk about the stress that comes with that, yeah. the financial burden that comes with little people, you know, like, and, and what kind of stress that brings and just all of life's issues yeah. and people 
become stressed. People um, may not know how to handle their stress or their anger, you know, in ways that are God honoring and honoring of the person that you're married to. And so we can always use other people in our corner to come and walk alongside of us. Yeah. This has been so good. Some takeaways for me on this conversation is definitely um, asking better questions when I'm in those conversations with friends, I feel more empowered to know like what some of those questions might be, but also thinking about um, the whole men part of the, the equation, you know, that this, this can affect men too. Uh, and I loved Ariel's statement at the end that there's nobody who's, who's, you know, the, the, the God's grace can be for the abuser too. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't absolve of consequences. Yes but we don't want to so villainize abusers that they seem unredeemable. Um, so those are just a few of the takeaways for me from this conversation. Really, really good. Yay. So, so glad that we did this. Yeah. Awesome. So next week we're going to be back live. Yep. Uh, we'll be talking to your friend, Holly Pivik. Yes. She's up in Alaska, Fairbanks. That's right. So she's going to, she's writing a couple of books with um, one of my old Talbot professors, Dr. Doug Guyvet. And they've done a lot of work on what's called the New Apostolic Reformation. Um, If people have heard of like Bethel Church or Todd White, uh, these are people that are in that. I call it the neo-charismatic stream of of Protestantism. They've written some books about this, but I think that sometimes their work gets weaponized to make it seem like they're both cessationists Mm -hmm. and they're not. Yeah. And so we're going to talk about uh, our miracles for today mm-hmm. with Holly and Doug. Awesome. So I'm looking forward to, be a good conversation. To, do, to doing that. And I think it'll be really good. So people aren't going to want to miss that. Yes. Well, thank you. I should be back in town by then. <laughs> God willing. All right. That's all for us. Thank you. God bless and good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.